0: We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. The key here is act like a happy family. We're the Osbournes and I'm daddy fucking Warbucks, okay? I always wanted one of you kids to take over. People would do well to remember there's going to be a new sheriff in town. Here's to us. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching. We are launching our new series today. We are covering the HBO series Succession. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson.
1: And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson.
0: If you've never tuned into a Still Watching season, what we do is we pick a season of television that we are particularly excited to talk about. We talk about it on a weekly basis, breaking down all the latest plots, sort of what people are talking about in terms of, I don't know, this isn't a very theory-heavy show, but theories or, um, you know, think pieces or what have you. And then oftentimes we have interviews with talent from the show. We, at the tail end of our last season, Big Little Lies, we talked a little bit about why we pick Succession as our next series. But Richard, you know, in case people are turning in for the first time, why do you think Succession is worthy of the still-watching? treatment
1: well it's really good for one it's just very well written and uh, acted um, I think that some people have a hesitation including myself uh, when I reviewed the first season of like it's now really the time to be watching a show about these you know rapaciously greedy power hungry billionaire media people um, who are very similar to the, the real life Murdoch family um, because in watching a show you do sort of start to root for the characters even if they're antiheroes and um, And I get that concern, and I still do feel it a little bit um, with season two so far. Uh, But I think there is also something really timely and cathartic about, I don't know, imagining just how bad these people really are.
0: I think think that's right. So, you know, if you have not watched season one, I would advise you, like, press pause on this, go watch season one, and then – Come, mm-hmm. come watch season two with us. Uh, but, uh, just in case you haven't, or maybe it's been a while since you watched season one and there's been a, oh, I don't know, one billion TV shows since then. Um, let's, let's catch you up a little bit. Uh, succession centers on the Roy family who, um, as Richard mentioned, are loosely based on the Murdochs or sometimes not so loosely based. The head of the family is Logan Roy, played by Brian Cox. And then you've got his four children, Connor Roy, played by Alan Ruck. You've got Kendall Roy, played by Jeremy Strong. Roman Roy, or Romulus, as he's sometimes called, uh played by Kieran Culkin. And Siobhan Roy, or Shiv, uh played by Sarah Snook. And um, the season one centered on Logan, who, you know, Brian Cox is in his 70s. Logan as a sort of somewhat ailing, but still... Uh, occasionally mentally very, very sharp and sharky head of this media company. Um, his ailing health, though, sort of leaves a bit of a vacuum in terms of who will take control of the company next, who will succeed their father. Kendall made the strongest bids, sort of two unsuccessful succession bids, uh, in the first season. And the first season ended, uh, just on the verge of it looking like he might pull off um, his secondary bid for power, uh, it ended with an accident that resulted in the death of a young man. And, um, the father, Logan, found out about it. So now he has this power over Kendall. Um, and, and more to the point, it's not just that there is blackmail leverage that Logan has over Kendall because of this, like, Chappaquiddick-esque murder, but, uh, that Kendall himself is like, he's a broken man because of it.
1: Uh, to very yeah, degree. he's racked with guilt, dealing with a chronic drug problem. Um, right. So he's really just beat, been just cowed and beaten to submission when, when this second season begins.
0: Right. Uh, Roman um, faces a possible corporate manslaughter charges because he rushed the launch of a satellite rocket uh, that exploded. And uh, Shiv Siobhan married Tom Matthew, played by Matthew McFadyen. Um, And so they, the season two opens on their honeymoon and, um, Connor is making a bid for president of the United States. And like, this is not a spoiler to say that like Connor Roy, uh, who I think is the most useless of the four Roy children. Uh, like I feel so confident that he's going to wind up winning the presidency. (laughs) Like that just, (laughs) it feels like it has to happen in the world we live in now. So, um, yeah, am I missing, what am I, what major, oh, and, and cousin Greg, I think is, is also worth mentioning, uh, tall gangly fellow who is like, af, like maybe the, the nicest, but still has the, the Roy streak of ambition in him. Uh, and, uh, Marsha, who is, uh, Logan's wife. Those are the main players, right? Not missing.
1: Yeah, anyone. I think so. Um, and I, I don't know if it really matters textually with the, the episode where the, the Premier episode of season two. But um, Connor is apart from the other siblings because he has a different mom. Um, So he's kind of like the weird outlier. He's the eldest, but he's not at the center of power because he's sort of a shoot it. Um, I think he's the most astute satire on the show, even though he's not in much of it.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, so the, the first episode of the season is called The Summer Palace. It's directed by Mark Millard, who is a, a director that I know best from Game of Thrones. He's done a bunch of Game of Thrones episodes, uh, and that's very fitting given the very thronesy, um, aspects, the struggle for power, um, that, that exists on the show. I, I was describing the show on Twitter last week as um like as if Game of Thrones centered on Tywin Lannister's retirement and everyone's a Lannister, um and that seemed to catch a bunch of people's attention who had had dismissed the show. The, the show got um moderately successful uh ratings in the first season, um but you know nowhere near a huge hit for Game of for nowhere near a huge hit for hbo um but that being said it was like a huge hit with critics and it's sort of one of those shows that like anyone who's anyone and i don't know what that means maybe like media elites in new york love it politicians love it people people who are obsessed with power Mm -hmm. seem to really really love it
1: Um, yeah and it had a sort of slow burn sleeper kind of hit like I would say maybe mid-season last season, you know, it was a summer show earlier in the summer, not in August. I feel like maybe episode six was airing and all of a sudden people were like tweeting about it and sort of had caught up on it. And and I think that a lot of people have watched it in, you know, the year that it's been off the air. Um, So I feel like this second season is going to be a much bigger thing um, for the show and, and for HBO.
0: Yeah, you know, we'll have to see what the numbers look like. But it certainly feels like it's just really gained momentum over the time. You know, some people have, I, I think almost everyone has gone into the show with a deep skepticism of why do I want to, like, watch these poor rich bastards, you know, like, why do I want to try to feel sorry for them, as you mentioned. Even I was reading – um the The Hollywood Reporter did a great piece on season two. And in that piece, even Kieran Culkin himself was like, I felt like, <laughs> why is anyone going to watch this show about these rich motherfuckers, basically? Um, But I think there's something about the way, uh, you know, I think of Logan Roy, like Tim Lannister is a good comparison. Or I think of him as like this old lion and Some just yeah Lear. Uh, Lear Yeah, absolutely. And just the way in which he manipulates his children in the way in which his children are who are little sharks in their own right revert to being just kids you know they're they're grown-ass adults but just in in certain times just become so vulnerable it's it's very compelling to watch absolutely
1: yeah and i think that you know there is some instructive value in Doing this thought experiment, imagining what compromises, what cruelties go into decision making, um, from people who run a tiny little corner of the world, you know, um, and, or maybe not even that tiny. Um, you know, the family runs a sort of Fox News-esque network that is alluded to as, you know, driving a lot of discourse in the country. So clearly that, you know, that has a major effect. And, and, and yeah, you might root for people, characters on the show here and there, but I think mostly you're, or at least I'm sort of, I guess, reveling in their squalor and their yeah. sort of the, the, the scrambling because it's it's kind of like weirdly healing in a way to to watch these people be as bad as you know I sort of always imagine them to be
0: bad and suffer for it. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu,
1: host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions
0: when visiting someplace new.
1: My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness, really, I found transformative. Or...
0: A story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Laleh Aracoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel. Wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, this season without, you know, we won't spoil anything beyond, uh, this first episode that we're discussing here. Um, but it should be said that this season, uh, they're introducing a number of more female characters, which is something that I was looking forward to. Um, Holly Hunter and Cherry Jones are both coming in, uh, as a part of the storyline that, that looks to examine, um, it's the Pierce family is, is the fictional name, but they're, they're sort of poking at the Sulzburgers who controlled the New York Times, uh, since 1896. So, uh, Holly Hunter, Cherry Jones, two great actresses. And then, uh, Jeannie Berlin is also, uh, in this season. I know her best from the night of Richard. Do you know her from theater? How do you, how do you know this great
1: actress? Yeah. She's just kind of like one of those New York actresses, but I think yeah. she really, you know, she had such a big, juicy part in the night of that, um, that's really when I like sat up and took notice. And so, when she appears in uh, the second episode of this season, I believe it is, I I was like very excited and I'm really excited about the other actresses you mentioned as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So we will get, we'll get more into those women as they crop up, but that is, that is like a big criticism. I heard that the show is too male too white and I'm like, well, it's still very white, (laughs) Um, but it is slightly more female this season, uh, which is, which is fun to see. And you
1: could argue that that maleness and that whiteness is the point. Right. You know, Absolutely um, in that it's trying to depict what that, you know, high stakes uh corporate world looks like in the real world.
0: Yeah. Um we should mention that um Jesse Armstrong who created the show, the show was like so long uh in the gestation process. It like it has kernels in a Murdoch biopic that he was gonna write. And then there was this other show he was going to write about, Two Brothers. He's just basically kind of been circling the drain on this concept for years and years and years. But they wound up doing, I believe, the first table read on the night of the 2016 election. Um And so sort of similar to – to Veep, or I think of um, the Good Fight, where there are these shows that had interesting things to say, and then all of a sudden are have to be viewed through the lens of Trump as well, um, uh-huh. and and could exist in one uh, way in their own right, but are made even more so, more potent because of of what's going on. Uh, in our own world. And so, like, the installation of Trump in the White House went hand in hand with the, uh, you know, increased influence of Fox News and, um, its direct line to the president and how it shapes, uh, our, our national conversation even more so than before. And it having a direct fictional analog in ATN, uh, this fictional network is, uh, yeah, it's fascinating to watch. Um, and then Richard and I have the advantage yep. of being part of, New York media, and there's a lot of discussion in these first few episodes about like print media, digital media. What's the future of these media conglomerates as they sort of swallow each other in the hope of staying alive? Uh, if that's not too grim.
1: No, no, I mean, <laughs> I think grim is the right tone.
0: Um, all right. So we, we start with Kendall and I, you know, I just, I just want to say, this Jeremy Strong is Kendall Roy is in in a sea of great performances. This is my favorite performance. And I'm not even sure I could tell you exactly why. I think it's because i I think that he, more than any of the other kids, is capable of looking like a little boy so easily. And you see this right at the start. He's just sort of like he's shattered. He's, uh, you know, can I just stay and have my spa treatment? He's trying to like dry out, I guess, in this like Icelandic spa somewhere. Um, and, you know, his, his face is just like crumpled and crushed and, and he looks young and old at the same time. Mm -hmm, Um, I mm -hmm. don't know what, like, what do you, what do you think of this Kendall opening?
1: Yeah. I mean, he, he, he's, he looks the part. You know what I mean? Like, and he has the right bearing of someone who fancies himself a decent guy, but was born into wealth and power and really is interested in maintaining and sort of taking control of that wealth and power. Um, uh, you know, I, I just yeah. And I think when I wrote the re- a review of the first season, I sort of focused more on the Sarah Snook and Kieran Culkin and Brian Cox of it all because they get to and Matthew McFadden, um, they get to have more fun. Um, And Jeremy Strong is stuck playing this sort of quote-unquote straight man. I mean, he's obviously got many of his own, you know, idiosyncrasies and and whatnot. Um, But I really, like, in this premiere episode of the second season, I really dialed in on what Jeremy Strong is asked to do and so thrillingly does execute. um, In that, like, he is, if the show has a moral center, he's sort of it. And I think he carries that really beautifully. Um, And I think this whole sequence where he's roused out of the pool at the spa and, you know, met by a very uh, officious, but kind, you know, liaison from his father's company, um, and then taken into this studio where he's going to do the, the, you know, um, uh, sort of satellite hit on a new show. Um, it's all just so well choreographed, incredible. And at the center of that is Jeremy Strong, who reacts in subtle ways, but that are very, I think, insightful and truthful.
0: Yeah, he's just got this little, like, little boy hangdog face that just, he looks like, like a little rascal almost. I like, I don't know, I don't know, like, how exactly to describe my, my response to him, but I think you did a really good job, Richard. And I think this, this opening of him just being shuffled along, um, yeah. and then we get to watch his siblings watch him, uh, Shiv and Tom on their honeymoon and, um, Roman cleaning up his own mess, um, in overseas and, and just taking swipes at him, uh, you know, and something that, succession is is so compelling for its story of power for its great performances but also of course it's it's sharp language uh jesse armstrong it's it's writer and creator you know got his he's he's a british writer got his start with uh very very incisive writings on um like in the thick of it and um peep show so the 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 insults that they love at each other are just like absolutely delicious so good so um i think uh unshaven candle uh was yeah. was my favorite yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> it has that ianuchian kind of yeah top spin on it yeah um, it's really the one of the most if not the most thrillingly written show on television i mean yeah it, because he armstrong and his other writers like they just go for it you know they're like you know if we're going to commit to this kind of high little level of uh of verbiage and sophistry and all that like let's just you know, go whole hog. It feels like watching a really juicy play, you know? Yeah. Um, And I, and I think that, um, you know, uh, one of the reasons that the show maybe didn't have too high a profile when it premiered last year was that it doesn't have huge names in it. Um, I mean, Brian Cox has been around a long time. People like Brian Cox, but like, otherwise it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a modest sort of cast in terms of star power, but they they work so well with the text that like you're like well that's why they have the job you know yeah. and and it's fun in this first episode of the second season it really feels like everyone is just in their groove and really hitting everything um perfectly and i think this opening sequence is a perfect example of that
0: yeah this is a show that i that i feel like it reminds me of um i don't know there were a lot of shows in the in recent years that people got really really invested in season 1 and then season two just like fell on his face. So many um, says, yeah. yeah. And I like the, the main example that I think of for me personally is Empire, even though that show had like strong ratings for many seasons after. I feel like Empire came out of the gate. I think it's because it's a similar like Shakespearean family sort of drama, but like everyone was just like, yes, Empire. And then Empire season two is just sort of like, and there on out just felt like diminishing returns. Um, you know, Handmaid's Tale is a less one to one comparison, but like a similar, similar experience. And so like Succession is a show that, um, wasn't as so fiery popular in its first season, but like it, it make or break in its second season. You know what I mean? And you can either mm-hmm. like build on something or we can be like, oh, okay, they, this was something that they had really great ideas for season one and season two, not so much. And I will say from what I've seen in season two, it's only better. Yeah. And I think exactly to your point, like everyone feels just like in their character, in their mode. Um, one thing that I, that I love about, um, the show is, and, and you see it in this first sequence with the siblings watching, uh, Kendall on TV is like, whoever's on top is always punching down. And mm-hmm. because you're only on top for two seconds. And if you're, if you have even the slightest advantage over your sibling, you're just mercilessly, um attacking them because you know you know that you're going to be tumbled down in the next second and that's the thing it's like they're they're merciless with each other whenever one of them fucks up and um you know there's certain people who are Consistent punching bags, like Connor's a punching bag, Tom's a punching bag, Greg's a punching bag, but like Greg is a punching bag for Tom so that Tom can feel taller. And, and then Tom is a punching bag for Roman so Roman can feel taller. And it's just sort of this like chain of, uh, you know, scrambling to get up to Logan's level.
1: Um, yeah. And then we see as the episode moves into, um, well, the, the titular summer palace out in the mountains, right. um, that, despite all of that you know name calling and bullying essentially um that the siblings do to each other and other people in their orbit, I guess there could be seen to be a perverse sort of love shared between them as well, um which again, I think lends a credibility to the show because no one is an outright you know monolithic villain, they're all pretty bad people, but they have human sides to them that you know, I think are really well teased out and articulated. And I really like the scene, um, you know, shortly after everyone arrives at the the mansion in the Hamptons and everyone's concerned about this smell that's stinking up the house, which I think is a great sort of obvious on-the-nose metaphor. Um, When Kendall sees Shiv and uh, Roman for the first time, they're out for a walk. And there's an absolute prickliness between them, and yet the ribbing that we saw them doing remotely when they were watching... Um, Kendall on TV, it, it's it's softened a little bit. There's a, a little bit more of a playfulness to it, um, which I think is a really well calibrated shift um, in how they relate to one another.
0: Yeah, and I think um, I think what's what's interesting about it is there are times when they will offer genuine genuine seeming support to each other and they're so defensive so used to being sort of mentally and emotionally toyed with by their father that they can't accept that support from their siblings even though like i mean the 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 truth of the story is if the four of them banded together or like let's leave connor out of it. If the three of them banded together they could take down logan and uh-huh. logan's Game has to be keeping playing them off each other because they are more powerful than him together, but they cannot get it get it together to unite against him. Uh, and you see them all like approaching that almost occasionally in season one, um, and just not getting there. And it, and that's that's a that's a tragedy because just sort of like no, you have this shared trauma of this awful father, like use it to bolster each other up, and and you will you will be fine, you know?
1: Yeah, and I think that what's so interesting about exactly that is the way that these characters are drawn and and the way that they're played is it's not even so much that they don't trust each other. It's that they don't trust themselves because they can see their own greed in their siblings,
0: you know? And
1: they're like, well, if I were in that position, I know sure as hell I would backstab them. And so they assume that the other person's going to. And so it's, it's all this kind of mutually assured destruction happening that keeps Logan at the top because they're also afraid of him. I mean, what's that line in the wire? If you come for the King, you better not miss, you know? Um, And Kendall has just missed terribly. Um, and I think him kind of realizing, oh my god, this is my life now, um, seems to be kind of the setup for his arc for, for, uh, across the season. But then we also have this kind of added interesting secret dynamic in the conversation that Shiv has with her father. I, I like that the episode is structured in such a way that, you know, they each have kind of their sit down moment with their dad. Yeah, um, it's, a ni- it's a nice kind of pacing for the episode, um, where he essentially says, you know, let's keep this off the record for now. But like, I want you to be my successor. And so there is a sense early on in the season of potential victory. And yet Shiv keeps saying, I don't think it's real. I don't trust it.
0: Which, like, she has every right to because this, yeah. this is exactly what he, what Logan did to Kendall in the first season, where he was just sort of like, Kendall was the anointed, um, successor. And then it was just sort of like, nah, I don't think so. You know what I mean? And so for mm-hmm. Shiv to be wary, even despite the fact that Logan's like, no, I mean it. Of course. I'm excited about this. This is great. And she's like, I don't believe it. And I'm like, sitting at home, I'm like, I don't believe it either. I don't know, you know? And like, but, but even before that, um, I was thinking of when Roman and Shiv are walking by themselves out to sort of like the, the, the seashore. And, uh, she's like, I support you, Roman. This is even, this is before she learns mm-hmm. that, you know, she's been picked or whatever. And, and, You kind of believe her and he absolutely does not. He's like, fuck you. You're trying to get in my head. You're a motherfucker. Like, how dare you play mind games with me? And then what's great about Sarah Snooks performance is like, I can't tell. She's always does this like little smirking thing and I don't know. I don't know what she's thinking all the time, most of the time. And that is the beauty of her performance. I love her in this role. So.
1: And I think that's something the show really expertly manipulates and I'll speak for myself, I guess, but like, you know, if I'm watching something like this, I tend to turn toward the female one you know, the sort of main female character and and fu- and try to find my sympathies there, you know? Yeah. And and I think the show understands that a lot of people react to to um female characters in largely male dominated shows that way. Or it doesn't have to be a show, any kind of story. Um and, you know, we see in the first season that she's sort of on the right side of polit- you know politics. We're working right. with progressive, you know, candidates, whatnot. And yet she's awful too, you know, like she's mean and sneaky and, uh, you know, as manipulative as every, as everyone else. Um, so I think it's interesting how the show and, and Snoke really seems to understand this takes our, a sort of natural favor or sympathy and, 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 and kind of twists it and, and kind of almost punishes the viewer for it. I think it's really interesting.
0: Yeah. I, I really, really love it. Um, so, do we want to, like, try, uh, in case our listeners are having any difficulty, remember, break down this, this deal, um, with the company and, like, uh, so basically, like, uh, Stewie and Sandy, like two characters from season one, were working with Kendall to try to take over, uh, Waystar Royce, uh, you know, forcefully force Logan out and take over the company. This was Kendall's sort of second bid for power. And uh it collapsed in a certain degree when uh Kendall makes this fatal error, um I guess this decision. Um and uh, Logan's like cool you're coming in you're you're back on my team now by force. But Sandy and Sue are going ahead with something called a bear hug. Uh, which is just like this public declaration that like we're gonna take over the company. It's what's best for your board, and Logan has to figure out a way to fend them off. I mean, it's like I know so little about business, <laughs> and I like i try pay I try to pay close attention to like what they're all talking about in the boardrooms, but like if you would ask me. I don't know, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, if someone owns a business and they don't want to sell it, they don't have to sell it, right? And I've been like, Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but you know, when you've got a board of directors, board members, and it's uh, a publicly traded company. And it's a publicly traded company, you don't have that unanim unan- like unilateral decision making. And so this is a very complicated uh back and forth power play that they're gonna go through in this season to see yeah. if Logan can hold on to his company.
1: And I'll be honest, look, I don't understand all the mechanics of this. I, 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 no. I, I trust that Jesse Armstrong knows what he's writing about. But I don't, you know, all the, the, the granular details, the minutiae of it, like, no, nah, I don't really understand. It. But the good thing about this show, this one of the strengths of the show is that that doesn't really matter. Like, I think as long as you feel a sense of stakes and urgency and have some broader understanding of the power dynamics in play, I think that's okay.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You don't need to have... Any understanding of business. Um, but, but just to, just to say that like, uh, th- these two people still want the company. Logan has to tread very carefully or he could sell. Uh, that's something mm-hmm. that he considers in this episode. Um, but the way in which yeah. he's constantly testing people, asking them their opinions, not really meaning it, just trying to figure out what they're going to say. Um, I, I feel like the thing that pushed him, Again, you know, because there's this, uh, Jamie character, this banker played by Danny Houston, who's sort of like, you should sell, selling is the smart thing to do. I feel like it was Marsha, his, um, wife, um, who said, oh, you should sell. You're an old man. You've been sick. Like that, that was the like sort of reverse psychology that, that pushed him to a point where he didn't want to sell. Do you feel like there was a different sort of turning point for him in this episode?
1: No, I feel like that, that's one. I mean, I think that, because there are two things at work. One is that the company, as a media company that deals in print newspapers and, you know, has a television network, they're, they're facing the sort of threat of, of digital things, you know, sort of overtaking their, their more linear traditional business. So that's the company's fear of obsolescence. And then there's Logan's fear of obsolescence in his own mortality. Um, and those two things, working together uh you know i think at the end of this episode he says we're just going to be the last one standing you know we're you know and 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 that's now the goal it's not to you know beat everyone else it's to just outlive everyone else um and that's a pretty deep root instinctual primal thing for most human beings you know um to survive um and so i think that that shifting in shifting the intended goals of the company and of Logan's own sort of course through life, uh, he just kind of doubles down and, and, gets renewed energy to, to push forward. Um, so yeah, and I, but I do think that Marsha is a character that, you know, sort of lingered in the periphery in the last season and, and is doing a little of that here too, but I hope that they, we get to understand her motivations more because she's clearly up to something.
0: She's so sneaky, like in a, everyone's a snake. It's a snake pit. Um, but I, I like that she's one of the snakes. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Um, and, and the power that she wields is, is subtler in a lot of ways. Um, I do want to mention, so when, when Shiv gets sort of tapped, uh, to be the successor. Uh, whether or not she believes that this is the case, she uses that conversation to negotiate a new deal for Tom, where Tom will now, um, be at the head of AT. He was in what? It's parks and cruises. Uh, mm-hmm. and now he's going to be at the head of ATN, which is like basically like helping, helping to run Fox News. Uh, and this is, this is a big feather in his cap and he's really excited about that. And she, uh, significantly does not tell him right away. Uh, cause their, their relationship is fascinating. Isn't it fascinating? I don't know. It's just sort of Mm -hmm. like, it's um, like, why does Siobhan need or want Tom? Like, why do you think Siobhan is with someone like Tom?
1: Because she needs an ally and a confidant, but it has to be someone she can control. Yeah. You know, and where else, but within the intimacy of a relationship, now a marriage, um can you get that sort of almost guaranteed security i mean obviously nothing is guaranteed in anything but like it couldn't be a friend do you know what i mean it had to be someone that she has a different sort of sway over um and you know obviously i don't think that tom is some innocent who like genuinely loves shiv and and he, he speaks openly about their sort of that about their mutual ambitions and and their, their, their sort of plan for the future um but he's definitely in second position you know and i think that ship needs that just as tom uh needs just as tom needs greg you know yeah. um so it's, it's like you said that everyone has to have their sort of counterpoint i think that where uh kendall finds himself at the beginning of the season is he's without that he has no leverage essentially and so watching him come to terms with that is uh is, is interesting in its own right
0: yeah um What's interesting that I realized at the start of this season is that the, like, uh, Roman has this, uh, girlfriend. It's complicated, but, uh, in the form of the character of Tabitha. But the person that he's most often paired with, um, all through last season and this, and the beginning of this season is, uh, is character of Jerry, who's like a long time, uh, you know, employee of the company. Um, and, and, and like she's maternal, but not, and so it's this very like complicated like uh, mother son uh, relationship between the two of them. That's uh, I don't know. I I I love their scenes. <laughs> I, I love them together. I think they're yeah. a very interesting pair. The two of them.
1: She's so. played by the great Jay Smith Cameron, um, who uh, has done a lot with her husband Kenneth Loner- Lonergan. Um, yeah, she's also another. Yeah, she's another one where you're like you, you want. To turn to her for for some measure of comfort and decency, and you know, again, that's a pretty gendered expectation on my part, and and um, but I think the show is hip to that because obviously she's there for for her own. I mean, I love the the bit where um Logan is saying like, "This is the plan. We're just gonna have to like we'll have a, we'll have an interim successor right now. We'll just name it. it could be anyone. It could be Jerry. Hey, it's gonna be Jerry." And she's like, "Oh, thank you." He's like, "I mean, it's not gonna be you, but you know, for now it'll be." And and she kind of has to. Accept that while feeling honored, but also it's a little bit of an insult. Like it, it's this complicated. So she's clearly in it for, for for something too. And and um, but yeah, I I do like her scenes in when she has to be a little bit scolding or maternal to to Kendall, and in some cases, her Roman.
0: Yeah, and I like it's. What's true of, of, all of the, uh, like older characters, uh, that are at this company is like, you can't have been at this company on uh, like under Logan for this long without knowing, learning how to play the game. Some much better than others. Jerry just strikes me as like one of the best game players there is. Like she knows her speed. She knows her use and she knows when to speak up and when to be demure and, and, and how to, how to survive.
1: yeah she's like tina wesson on survivor season two i want to say okay (laughs) three maybe (laughs) who like you know was you know an older woman who people kind of um discounted but she stuck it out and won because she just played the diligent you know keep your head down kind of game um and yeah maybe that's that's who jerry is too
0: maybe it's jerry maybe 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 jerry is gonna win this whole game um the the other thing that I love about this episode and the show in general is like, it doesn't, you know, obviously Logan Roy is an analog for, for Rupert Murdoch, but like, they don't keep it that simple and that clean. And so in this episode, when he refuses to pay the contractor who has perhaps stuffed a bag of dead raccoons up against, up through the chimney, like, that's a very Trump move, right? Don't pay your contractors. That's a. Uh-huh that's a classic trump move you know so look look you know you you can't just look for one um awful billionaire in any of these <laughs> you have to look for a bunch of different ones uh jeremy strong who plays kendall said he was reading like M- michael ovitz biographies or whatever you know like it's just uh-huh. sort of like wherever they can find these these people behaving badly these people with so much money behaving badly they will take inspiration so um
1: yeah and you, so. you just like have to turn off certain parts of your humanity i mean you know where you hit, where, where logan has this confrontation with this you know relatively unassuming seeming contractor He's like, I'll give you a hundred grand, and he's like, but it's a three hundred grand job job. And and Logan says, Well, my lawyer worked for the Justice Department. What does your lawyer do as he walks away? It's like Logan is totally comfortable with like potentially ruining this man's life and his livelihood, you know, in one second. Um
0: But also so- that contractor definitely did stuff dead raccoons up that you chimney. Think so? <laughs> I think so. Who else did it? They were bagged. It wasn't just like a raccoon fell, it was like a bag of raccoons stuffed up the chimney. Who do you think did it? Uh Jared. So. Okay. Well done, Jerry. You've ruined yeah. a contractor's life. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. And so the last, uh, scene I think that we have to talk about is just this ending scene where, um, uh, as Logan says, we, we gotta go now stick, you know, stick some raccoons up someone's chimney. Like he takes Kendall, uh, in the chopper and they go to see, uh, Sandy and Stewie, um, to sort of deliver a message about how the dealings will, will, will be going forward. And, and the character of Stewie was like, genuinely Kendall's friend in uh-huh. season one, genuinely his friend. Yes. Like a, a usury kind of guy, like, you know, he's out for himself, but like as much as he was capable of being a friend to someone, he seemed like a friend to Kendall. And so to watch him make like, um, you know, maybe, maybe a self-serving appeal, but an appeal to that friendship and for Kendall to just be a complete blank, broken, toy in front of him
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh and just say like you know because my dad said so sort of thing um is l- very effective i think uh in this final encounter here
1: yeah yeah it's because he's genuinely he really wants to know what happened you know he's not asking it out of any sort of strategic trying to you know, get intel he's just genuine as a person it's like what ha- like what changed yeah. Um, and I also love the writing in this scene. I mean, it's pretty vulgar, but like, where he's talking about, here's what's gonna happen if you guys keep doing this. You know, we're gonna like kill your pets and have people fuck your fuck wife. Your <laughs> wife. And like, like, it's just like this great operatic bit of writing. Um, that, and then, and then Sandy has the the last line, um, where he's just basically something like, well, let's get on with that then. You know? Yeah, like,
0: let's go ahead with that part of it. Or whatever. Yeah, yes, so, yes. Yeah. It's
1: so, it's so perfect. <laughs> and like, you know shows like okay so the show is not about sandy but like he's a crazy power hungry maniac too like like, yeah like all of these people everyone swirling around in this ecosystem um is just a ruthless glutton for punishment and you know all kinds of things
0: um i should say yeah my favorite line from that um exchange is stewie's uh Suey so asks if Kendall is the skull tied to Logan's belt, like sort mm-hmm. of the example of like what could happen to you—a uh, cautionary tale sort of thing. Which he, which he is. You know, I um, I think about um, I think about. <laughs> I I apologize for continually comparing it to Game of Thrones, but I think about the st- the stakes or, or needing to show the fallout from something big and dramatic that's that's concluded your previous season, right? And in some ways, Game of Thrones landed that like with, you know, Ned Stark's death at the end of season one ripples all the way through the series, I think. And then some ways it really biffed that like when Jon Snow dies and then he comes back and really genuinely feels like a no, no big deal, but it feels like Kendall Roy died at the end of season one. And what we're seeing here is such a demonstrable, like, Shattering ramification of that, because um, I think you know, or or let's pick non Game of Thrones shows, like um, season two of Friday Night Lights, when like the character spoiler for season two of Friday Night Lights, when the character of Landry like kills a guy, <laughs> and then like it's kind of forgotten, you know, like you need these things to really matter. And the death of this anonymous waiter at the end of season, I mean, he had, he had a name, I'm sure, but the end of season one, this very minor character, this waiter, like his death matters. And, uh, Kendall's, uh, complicity in it matters. But we find out in this episode that like the waiter survived long enough to like unbuckle his seatbelt. So like, um, I can't remember. I apologize. That I haven't rewatched the crash, but I can't remember like, does that mean then that like Kendall could have maybe saved him if he had tried harder, stuck around? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. it's a, it's a serious question. And then to end on a lighter note, uh, one exchange that I forgot to mention, cause you do need some lightness with all this, <laughs> uh, death and mayhem is the, the park coke scene. Greg, Greg tries to get Kendall some coke. Um, and he gets some, some disgusting coke. And there's just something about the way that Jeremy's strong as Kendall goes, Ew, dude! Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, um, yeah, the Park Coke, pretty, pretty fantastic stuff. So, uh, yeah, so Succession. Is there anything else you want to say about this first episode before we we name our most successful? <laughs> uh successor in this in this episode
1: well it's not about this episode but i would say if people want to hear um from one of the horses mouths um i did interview matthew mcfadden on our sister podcast little gold men yes. earlier this year so go seek out that episode um he had a lot of interesting things to say about um you know like you said that they, they did the first table read the night of um the 2016 election and whatnot so yeah give that a listen if you just are hungry for that much more succession content
0: um, who isn't? Yeah, it's a great interview. And I love this, this, uh, performance of Matthew McFadden because we're like, we're so, um, you know, he's Mr. Darcy or he was, uh, you know, in, in the show, uh, it's called Spooks in the UK. Was it called here? MI6, I guess. Uh, uh, he's, he's just like been this tall, sort of like heroic leading man for so long. And so for him to play this, like, you know, just oh, soft piece of tissue paper that is Tom, uh, who's also a snake once again in his own right. Everyone's got snakey qualities. So. It's
1: an utterly wild performance, it's and so and and it's good. so good. And the writing for him is so particular, and um, yeah, it's just really fun watching an actor. You know, you think you know as a sort of classic British period guy do this yeah bizarre modern American thing.
0: Um. All right. So before we before we head out, Richard, who is the most successful successor in this episode i
1: think from the viewpoint of just episode one i think shiv walks away with it
0: gotta agree with you it's gotta be shiv it's shiv shiv by a mile she got it uh and then um i'm gonna i'm gonna surprise you and ask you for least successful successor i'll go first um you know i will just say the 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 saddest i will say this the the least successful moment of the episode for me in terms of like how sad I felt about the world was watching those, uh, the staff of the summer palace just dump lobster into the trash.
1: Oh my God. Yes. So <laughs> Cause it had been
0: sitting in the stink, uh, as Logan said. And, uh, they just ordered pizza, but, uh, the, you know, so that lobster, I guess is the least successful successor for me. Uh, what do you, what do you say, uh, Richard?
1: Well, at that point, the poor raccoons, I guess. Yeah, sure, um, sure.
0: The maggoty uh, raccoons.
1: But I, I think I think you know if Shiv wins in a weird way, I think that the, the least is is Tom, you know um because yeah he'll be carried along with her, but but she doesn't even tell him in this episode you know so like <laughs> he's just so out in the cold and only brought in when it's beneficial for whoever to bring him in.
0: Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, until we are back, uh, talking success and lack thereof, uh, next week, Richard, where can people find you?
1: Ugh, stuck in someone's chimney, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but I'll be, while I'm in the chimney, I'll be tweeting, uh, at Rylaws and of course, writing on VF.com uh and on little gold men joanna until we uh, head back into the fray with the richies where will you be
0: oh I, well i will be obviously trolling for park coke and um <laughs> you can
1: also <laughs> in golden gate state park or something
0: yes yes in golden gate park uh or, or yosemite yosemite park coke is the best park uh,
1: Woods. Has the <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, you find me on twitter at joe wrote this um and yeah and listen to us both on little gold men and we will see you next time Can't get enough of Bachelor Nation. Enter Betch's hilarious Bachelor Recap Podcast the bachelor each week host k brown and me jared freed recap the latest episodes of the bachelor and make fun of all the ridiculous things the contestants say and do because honestly why else watch the show if not for the fun commentary listeners have called the bachelor the much needed humor and commiseration they want after watching the show listen to the bachelor podcast now on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts
1: Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host
0: of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting
1: someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness, really, I found transformative.
0: Or, a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to (laughs) eat me? But then, I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it, and it won't (laughs) eat me, and maybe I'll (laughs) ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Aracopley every week for more adventures on women who travel wherever you listen to your podcasts